Hello, this is Jim Reynolds, and you are on the Christian Life Empowerment Podcast. Well, I'm going to be doing something just a little bit different today because I'm going to be interviewed by my friend Aaron Rittenauer. He has a podcast called the Simply Overcoming Podcast. So Aaron wanted to interview me, so we're going to kind of do it backwards right now. I'm going to be the one getting interviewed, and you're going to find out more about me than I probably want you to know, but eh, that's the way it goes. So here we go. Take it away, Aaron. These two young boys came up to me about 10, 11 years old, and both of them were saying, they, they told me, he says, uh, do you have any food? And I didn't have any food with me. I had a pocket full of rupees, but I have, you know, 300 people around me. I can't really start handing out rupees. And and I said, I'm sorry. They said, sir, we're, we're really hungry. Do you have any food? And I, I said, no, I don't have any food. And, and, and I left those boys hungry. And I asked our doctors and I said, what, 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 what can we do? I mean, we can't feed all the children in India. And that's when the idea started coming because they were saying, you know, if, if you could teach them to drink clean water and wash their hands, that you'd make a huge difference because a lot of the nutrition that they do get is going to fight off disease. Hey everyone, it's the Simply Overcoming Podcast, and this is Aaron Rittenauer. Thanks for joining us once again for another episode. Today I have a very wonderful guest with me, a good friend of mine who is changing thousands of people's lives around the world. But before we start talking with him, I just wanted to mention something that happened recently. I was speaking to one of the listeners of the Simply Overcoming podcast, and he asked me a question, and that question was, why did I stop recording the podcast a year and a half ago after the first episode? Because if you are somebody who started listening back then, I only recorded one episode and then stopped recording. And I really had to think about it, but I realized that the answer is very simple. I didn't feel like I was the right person to be talking to people about overcoming when I have things in my life that I have to overcome. You know, I'm still struggling with things in my life. But uh, I recently came to a realization, and that realization is this isn't about me. This is about the people out there who are listening to these stories, the people who can benefit from the stories from the people on this podcast. You should never feel like you're unworthy to help somebody by sharing your own experiences and your own story. Okay, let's get into the episode. I present to you Jim Reynolds. I met you four years ago, right, Jim? I believe so, yeah, in India. Yep, I met yes. you in India. It was. It's kind of funny because I was thinking about this and I realized that we were in Walla Walla together a couple months ago um, for some meetings, and I realized that other than one time meeting you in an airport in Seattle, that was the first time where I was hanging out with you on American soil in the last four years. <laughs> that is funny. Although, I don't know you if you know, noticed that. I, I did not even think of that because, I mean, we have spent massive time going from village to village and, you know, in cars and trains and buses or now, well, I don't think, well, small buses, but mostly cars and trains and, and airplanes. And <laughs> yeah. so we've spent massive time doing the, this, this cool stuff over in India. And I've yet to get you over to the Philippines, but I know that's coming. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I'd love to come over to the Philippines with you 
you. That would be great. Well, hey, Jim, thanks for being on the show today. I know you have a fantastic story. And I just, I know it's taken me all these years, but I just listened to your audio book that you have over on your podcast, the, uh, the Christian Life Empowerment Podcast. It was great. I learned a lot of things about you that I didn't, I didn't know whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, probably way too much. That's Pro- what I tell people. Probably You're learn more than you need in this book. You know, for being like as small of a book as it is, there was really a whole lot of information. You did a really good job at telling the story and, you know, just talking about the most important parts of, of the story, you know, and getting to the ultimate point. So you wrote that book back in uh, 2014? Yeah, I I did. I I had done, I I tried to keep it succinct because I knew that the people I wanted to hand it out to were people that may not read a big book. You know, Um, I I was doing talks at Salvation Army to a group of uh, people that were, you know, trying to recovering alcoholics and drug addicts and stuff like that. And so in these talks and and the people I'm I'm talking to, it's nice to have something small to give them because something big is too intimidating. And most people, I don't know anymore. Most people aren't reading a big, thick book. Sure. Yeah. Isn't that very accurate? Well, I would love to talk with you more about um, your work overseas. We kind of just touched on it just now, but I sort of want to go back to to the beginning and talk about your book a little bit and your life. And um, you grew up in a Christian home, yes? Yeah, I did. Um, my, my mom and dad were both Christians. Um, my dad left the church at a, at a point in time, and but my mom has always stayed stayed Christian. So at a certain point, you started falling off the rails, which may have come from, uh, may have started with your parents' divorce. At least that didn't help the situation. No, that didn't help the situation. And and really, you can't blame it on anybody but yourself. I mean, you can make your own decisions and choices in life. But the divorce probably didn't help. My dad left the church, left my mother, um, got remarried, and and really started going down a secular path. Where we had a bar downstairs, and we had parties, and and you know that's where I started playing the guitar and, and uh, playing with the with the little country band we had going down there. And you know, I I thought, wow, this is exciting. This is really cool because I was brought up in a very conservative church, as you know. You and I are both basically brought up in the same religion, and so in the very conservative church drinking and smoking and, and, uh, you know, staying up at night partying and, and all I mean, that's just not anything that you did. And of course the, the country music didn't, <laughs> wouldn't have been something that our, our conservative church would have really appreciated back in those days. Cause you think about it boy, that was back in the, what the seventies, early eighties. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So gr- growing up in that conservative environment, when you do finally start to um, experiment with drugs and alcohol, Oftentimes, it, people are unable to control it to the to the point where it takes them um, down a, a dark path that many people don't ever go down um, when they're raised around that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, and and it did. I mean, I went down. Oh boy. I was doing things. I've always been kind of an entrepreneur. And, and so not only would I go experiment with, with drugs and alcohol, but I realized that, hey, uh, I could make some money doing this. 
And so I, I started buying quantities of pot and, and selling that. And, and then I started buying quantities of cocaine and, and, you know, I'd cut it and, and then sell it, split it up and sell the cocaine. That's the only way I could afford to do cocaine. I mean, that was very expensive for a, a teenager, but if you could buy an eight ball and sell it in quarter, you know, in, uh, in little quarters, you, you, you did okay. Is that how you started dealing is just because you needed to get your own, get your own fix. So you started selling so you could buy your own fix or no, you know, really, I partially, I think the other part is, is it, it always seemed like the drug dealers were cool. Right. Oh yeah. I want to be, everybody cool. wanted to hang out with the guy that had all the weed or the guy that had the Coke or, you know, and, and, you know, back then as a teenager, you did anything you could do to get the women. And, and so seemed like the cool guys with all the drugs and all the Coke had all the women. And, and that didn't really work out as well as I was hoping. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so this was back in the seventies, you said? Oh, well, this is the, by the time, this time I'm a teenager and this okay. is in the eighties. This so was the in the eighties. Yeah. The early eighties, the, the cocaine period, the, you know, the Scarface period. I don't remember if you, you watched the movie Scarface. I haven't. No. <laughs> oh man. With Al Pacino, that was the, that was Scarface was the, that was, Listen, we were all aspiring to be. It was a, a lot of people from your generation. Give me a hard time that I haven't seen that movie. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah. I need, maybe I need to see that movie. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, probably. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe not. It's, it, but back then that was, a, that was a pretty cool movie anyway, but, but yeah. So, you know, the one thing though, that with my Christian background, a lot of parents, they, they look at their kids, they look at their kids going the wrong direction. They're like, Oh, what did I do? I really messed up. And, and some of us have, I mean, we, we just have messed up, but what, what, what I had with my Christian background is I didn't do what some of my friends did. For, for some reason, I always had that behind me. I always had that in the back of my mind that God was there, that God was watching me, and that um, I couldn't go too far. I would go to the edge of the cliff, but I wouldn't go over. And I seen some of my friends that that uh, went over with meth and with heroin and with cocaine and with alcohol further than I would have ever gone. And so, you know, I try to tell people, I, they ask me, well, what were you addicted to? Well, I was addicted to getting high. I mean, I was, I didn't get the shakes when I quit drinking. I didn't, you know, have to go to a treatment center. Not that that's a bad thing. I may, maybe I should have earlier, but, but I was able to get, when I, when I did get clean and sober, it was through God. It was through the church. It was through just, just understanding my situation and asking God for the help. And, and some people, I mean, they can't do that. They need to go to a treatment center and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but I think my Christian upbringing bringing kept me from crossing that line. Although I did some crazy stuff, man. I mean, I was, oh, I mean, I, I don't know if the, the statute of limitations is over, if I can really say what I've done, some of the things I've done. But <laughs> well, I know that there was something that happened in your life that really changed the course of your life and, and who you are as a person. Um, there was an accident that you were in. Talk to us about the accident that you were in. Well, I was <laughs> I was 21 and I was uh, on my motorbike. I, well, I got you know, got on my motorbike that's that morning the funny part is is i looked at my car and i looked at my motorbike it was a nice day so i took my bike and it's funny how just a little uh, a little 
bitty decision can make such a huge impact in your life. So I took the bike instead of the car and I'm driving down the hill and I'm going down the hill. There's big old hill on Thiessen Road. If you're in the Milwaukee area, everybody knows Thiessen Hill. And so I'm going down Thiessen Hill at the bottom of the hill. Somebody pulls out of the driveway right in front of me. And so there was nothing to do, but to, I mean, I tried getting around him going in the other lane. There was a, a, a ditch on the other side of the road. I put the bike down and, um, and, and I, the, the book's called This Is Gonna Hurt. And that's because I remember that's the last thing I thought. I put the bike down and it was like everything was going in slow motion and I could see that car coming at me. And I, that last thing I thought is, this is gonna hurt. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I, I slammed into that car. So wow. that was the wreck. And then, you know, that was back before cell phones. So somebody ran into a house and, and called 911 and the ambulance came and took me to the top of the hill where Life Flight picked me up. And the Life Flight had to pick me up because ambulance don't, doesn't carry blood supplies. Um, but Life Flight does. And so I was losing blood very fast. And so they had to call in Life Flight so they could uh, pump me back, you know, put some blood back in me. Wow. And and then they flew me to a manual hospital and I got to the hospital and, and they took me in and my jaw was busted because my full face helmet got pulled off my got pulled off. And which is fortunate I had it on because I, my head went through the back windshield of the car. Were you conscious most of the time or were you in and out? What do you remember of that specific time uh, getting um, taken to the hospital by life flight? Do you remember much of that? I, I remember them putting me in the helicopter but then they give you a drug to knock you out once you get in the helicopter. Yeah. So, so, so I don't remember the helicopter ride. And it's the only helicopter ride I've ever had. And so it kind of ticks me off that I don't get any, yeah. Any we bonus we, we need to get you another helicopter ride, Jim. I do. <laughs> I always thought the helicopter would work really good in India. The places we go in India, it's so messed up what we've got to do and the roads we've got to drive on and the hours and hours it takes. We could accomplish so much with a helicopter. It would save a lot of time. If there is a very rich person out there that would like to donate money for a helicopter for ultimate mission, Aaron and I <laughs> would both appreciate you very much. But uh, yeah. Uh, like Jim, come, if, if, if you come out to Montana, Jim, we can go out to Glacier and take a helicopter ride in Glacier. That's a good place to do it. <laughs> oh, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I that's, need to get out that's to a Montana good place anyway. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in this accident, you're taken to the hospital, your jaw is busted because your helmet was ripped off your head. What else, what else was going on with you? Oh boy, my whole face was mushed. Um, I had 13, they had to put 13 metal plates in my face, wire my jaw back together, reconstruct my nose. Um, it's really weird. They used, they used baby cartridge, cartilage to reconstruct my nose. Wow. From yeah, from babies that died at birth, or I, I, I don't know if it was aborted baby. I don't know where this came from, but I was just told that it was baby cartilage they used to reconstruct my nose. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, and then my uh, on my right leg, my femur was busted in half, and then my knee was shattered. It just completely shattered, and so they put my my leg in traction. What I, and then they they cut off my leg above my knee. So now I'm I've got an amputated leg above the knee on my right hand side. I'm in traction. I've got a tracheotomy in. I wake up and and boy, I tell you what, I was a mess. <laughs> I was a mess. You know, what I tell people in the book is is that was the most fortunate day of my life. 
I, you know, it, it, I had walked away from God at that point at 16 years old. I had completely walked away from God. I had gone another direction. I had been experimenting with everything the world had to offer. I mean, I did everything but put a needle in my arm. I just, I wasn't going to go that far, but you know, whether, whether it was acid, Coke, uh, we called it crank back then, but now, and everybody calls it meth. Um, you know, whatever there there's, I'm just, I'm just glad they didn't have ecstasy. Cause that's a bad drug. And I, I, we, they didn't have that back then, but mushrooms, I mean, whatever. And so, so I was doing all this stuff. I was selling stuff. I was, I was doing, they really doing some bad stuff. I shouldn't have been involved in, you know, you had, you had a motorcycle, you had a, a I, you were talking about your car. I don't know how nice of a car you had. Did you have your own house at that point before the accident? No, I was 21 years old. I was, I was actually, I wonder if my wife's going to get mad at me and say that I should probably not. I was, uh, I was actually living with my girlfriend at the time Okay. in her place, which is now my wife. So eh, it makes it a little better, but, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's another thing, Belinda, we, we'd been going, uh, my wife, Belinda, we'd been going out for three months before this. Wow. And I, you know, I, I didn't actually move in with her. It's just like I was, um, I had my own place and I was living in an apartment with a couple of buddies. And, and then I, uh, I had my own place and it just, she, she just cooked really well. And so I just ended up staying there and, and, you know, let me get this straight. I, although I sold drugs, I never made any money. I mean, I made money, but all the money I made went back into putting Coke up my nose or whatever, you know, you, you don't make money doing drugs. And, and yeah. selling. some people do. I mean, I know guys that have, have uh, grown pot and made money. So yeah, people make money, but I tell you what, the lifestyle that's associated with drugs is not conducive to, to saving cash. It really isn't because if you do drugs, you like drugs, you, you sell drugs. It's, it's just, yeah. Very few people make any money out of it's it. It's all, it's all a bad habit. It's, it's all a bad habit and it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. And it just runs your body down. And, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a horrible way to live. It's so funny. You keep answering questions that I have right before I ask the question. Nope. <laughs> that was one of the questions that I had, but you know, you said um, that that was one of the most fortunate days of your life when you had your accident. That's a pretty, pretty positive outlook. Is that, you know, that's, have you always been a positive person in life or is that something that you've cultivated over time? I mean, you wake up in the hospital, your leg is cut off above the knee. You have all of these um, things that have happened to you. What is going through your head at that time? There's no way that you're being positive at that time, or maybe you are. I, you know, I don't know if you could call it positive. I mean, I call that the most fortunate day of my life because as, as a Christian, I know the lifestyle I was leading. And if I would have died, I, I wouldn't have been ready to meet my maker. I mean, I, I absolutely was not ready to meet my maker. And I, and, and being a Christian, I, I know the, you know, I know what happens when you're not ready to meet your maker and you die. It's not a good deal, but you know, I, I, I don't know when I, when I first woke up and realized what had happened to me, I was, I was shocked. And then, you know, shortly I, I don't know. I kind of looked at it as, as a challenge is okay. Well, uh, this is what it is. Uh, here we go. How are we going to handle this one? And I assume and, you started following Jesus the very next day. <laughs> no, you just gave up all the drugs, the alcohol, and you just followed Jesus from then on. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but I thought about it 
because yeah. you know I, I remembered you know you have all this happen to you and you 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 realize that God probably saved your life and and I thought man you know I should go back to I, I've got this Christian roots that I'd been in you know this upbringing and and I had all the information I needed to go back to God and I felt God calling me back but I. You know, I was 21, right? And my friends are, your friends are really important to you when you're young. They, they are now too, but you have your family and you have other things. But, but when you're 21, you're young, your friends are really important to you. And the first thing that came to my mind is, well, if I go back and become, you know, a Jesus guy and go to church all the time, what are my friends going to think of me? I mean, what, what are they going to, are they going to, and I felt that they thought I would be weak. That if I needed God, if I, I, it meant I couldn't handle it myself, and I wasn't strong enough to take on this 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 challenge that life had put in front of me, and so I decided I wasn't going to go back and and ask God for help. I was just gonna, I just kept living the way I was living. Um, just got out of the hospital and and first thing I did was call somebody to come get me some pot and some alcohol and I was <laughs> mixing some of the alcohol with uh, the pain medications we had and and seeing what those mixtures felt like and yeah because well, I was in a lot of pain right after this yeah I went through like 17 different surgeries in a really 17 different of time. surgeries wow yeah. well when you grow when you grow up in that religious environment there's no way that that is not going to cross your mind after an accident like that after an incident like that but I assume that afterwards your mentality may have been more like hey i just cheated death yeah like me uh yeah i but you know i just i just kind of took it in stride a little bit i wasn't real excited about cheating death i i don't know i i was always 10 feet tall and bulletproof and, and i just <laughs> figured it would never happen to me and then uh I uh, then you know four years later because remember I got blood transfusions during all of that I lost a lot of blood right yes and then four years later I get a letter from the Red Cross and they said uh, well you know you got blood transfusions in in what was it eighty six says you got blood transfusions he said the and then the letter says the person that gave the blood that we gave to the hospital that went into you was HIV positive. Wow. And, and that was a showstopper. This was back before they ever tested blood. Yeah. Yeah. That. The red cross really didn't, you know, they were, they weren't testing that hard for, for different things in the blood. And, and so they, in the letter, it said, well, sh show up here and we'll test you and see if you have HIV. And, and so I had to make an appointment and then go to that appointment. And I still remember going in and they apologized to me and said, yeah, we, we test the blood a lot better nowadays. And the nurse took it from my arm and, and my wife and I were in there. And, and by this time I'd had a child and I had, had been married for free a few years and so it you know back then in the early 90s is when this happened um hiv was a death sentence it isn't mm. like it is now where you have a cocktail of drugs and and you can virtually live a normal life with hiv now but back then that wasn't true everybody i knew that had aids matter of fact i had a friend named jim winkin and he got in a motorcycle wreck really close to when i did i mean super close like within the same year and he got a uh, blood transfusion. He got HIV and he died. Oh, my. And that was a good friend of mine. 
I mean, that stuff was happening. A uh, friend of mine, his brother got HIV. He, he was homosexual, but he got HIV and he died. So back then in the 90s, it was it was a pretty serious Very deal, serious. HIV. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of people knew people that died from from AIDS. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so I, I've got, so, so now they're saying I, you know, I've got blood with HIV and I'm going, Oh, you know, so I started talking, <laughs> I started talking to God then. Yeah. Like you said, that Christian background and that kind of stuff happens. And all of a sudden God became pretty important to me. <laughs> and I started talking to God and I, you know, I told him, Hey, if you can't save me, at least save my family. And it was weird. It was, if, it was if I just felt this warm feeling like this presence of Jesus just come over me and say, it's going to be okay. And it was the weirdest feeling I ever had. And I went to my mom that day and I, I told my mom who my mom's still very religious. Right. And I didn't tell anybody else in the world. And so told my mom, I said, uh, I said, God told me it's going to be okay. And she kind of go, yes, I, I, I hear you, you know, kind of like, I want to believe you, but yeah, whatever. Um, but sure enough, uh, after I did the test, I didn't have HIV. The test were ne was negative. Wow. So how does the guy that give me blood have HIV, but I don't have HIV? Did the doctors give you any explanation at all that Nothing. they could come up with? No, no. The only, I mean, no, they, they couldn't come up with any explanation. Wow. So Wow. So I don't know what happened. Maybe it didn't get into that. I mean, maybe, maybe he got HIV right after he gave blood. I don't oh. know. Maybe I got some age resistant strain of something in my, but what I really like to think is, is maybe God saved my life again. Yeah. And so again, I told, you know, again, I thought about going back to my, in my, my Christian roots. And again, I just, you know, it's so hard to change. It really is. It just it isn't easy to change. And and then, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're going to get to the part about my kid because that's I don't know. Yeah, when you wanna I do want to talk about there. that. But I did. I wanted to ask you about oh, uh, a warrior in all of this, which is your wife, Belinda. Mm, yeah, yeah. How did all of this affect Belinda? You had been dating Belinda for you said a few months before yeah, your accident. Yeah, a few months yeah. before your accident, she stayed with you. She took care of you during that time. What was it like for Belinda during this time? Oh boy, it couldn't have been easy. I mean, she she just took it on like it was uh, a new project. I mean, it was just something that she had. Her maternal instincts just went into hyperdrive. And she, you know, because I was out of work for a year. I mean, it was, she was the only one working at the time. And, and I ended up getting a settlement, which wasn't very, you know, which was, was okay, which helped us out quite a bit. But, um, but yeah, she had to work. She had to come home and take care of me. She had to, it was, she did an amazing job. And it was amazing that she stayed with me through all of that. Because you know what, um, when you're in pain and and when a lot of things are happening and your life is changing that drastically, it, you may not always be the nicest person to be around. <laughs> and, and it would have been really easy for us to, to split up during that time. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, my wife has just been incredible. When how, you, how long after the accident did you guys get married? A year. A year. Yeah. Wow. 
well, I, you know, you know, I had to keep that one. I mean, I wasn't gonna, <laughs> she I wasn't was there gonna, to stay. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to wait around for that. I was going to make sure she, she couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, there's a part in your book where you were talking about how I think at this point you had two boys. You were still dealing drugs out of the house. You're still smoking pot yourself, drinking alcohol, I assume. And you came to a point in your life where you said uh, you told God if he could help you find a way to support your family, you would stop dealing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and at that point I only had Brock, which would Brock is Belinda. Brock came with Belinda. Um, right. and, and he was the light of my life. I mean, he was just the saving grace of that whole thing because I, I would watch Brock while Belinda was at work. Brock was three or four years old at that time. And he would just come in with a beaming face and, and everything. And, 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 you know, before I'd been selling drugs, you know, all the time before this accident. Now, when the accident happened, I was selling drugs and working before, but when the accident happened, I could no longer work. And so the only income I had was from selling pot and I had two guys that grew in their basement and I was their sole person that would go out and, and sell it once they harvested but the thing is is and and I was selling cocaine too because I like cocaine and so I, I do that just to be able to get my own coke every once in a while but uh but the people that were coming in and out of the house you know, when you, when you sell drugs, yeah, yeah, you don't always sell to the, the high, I don't know how to call it, but I, I mean, I don't want to offend anybody, but, but you're okay. Here you go. You sell to some real scumbags. I mean, there's some people that crawl out from under the rock to come in to buy some drugs. It's not um, a good environment for a kid. It's, it's not a good, I mean, you sell to nice people too, because there's, there's nice people that, that do drugs, but, but there's a lot of people that really shouldn't be hanging out with your four-year-old kid um, that are coming in to buy drugs. It's just simple as that. And so, so this is happening and I'm feeling bad. These people are coming in and out of my house and and I got this four-year-old kid that's just wonderful. And I said, God, I, I can't do this. I, you know, I need, but I don't have another way to make a living right now. And if you will just figure out some way for me to make a living, I will stop selling drugs. And, and my lawyer calls me. We had we'd gone through this thing because we tried to sue the county because the road was messed up. We tried to sue the guy's insurance who pulled out in front of me, but it turns out he had no insurance um, and he had no license. Oh, so. So he had no license, no insurance. And then my hospital bills were so high. If I would have sued the county for the messed up road that nobody could see anything on those at that time that anything I got from the county would go straight to pay for my hospital bills. So I would see nothing. So it made no sense to do that. So I, there was no way I was going to get any money. Then the lawyer found a loophole because the guy didn't have license or insurance. My uninsured motorist kicked in, which is $20,000. And I got that. And so in, in 90, uh, 1990, uh, $20,000, I think it was a little before 90. It was, uh, yeah, it was about 87, actually. $20,000 was, yeah, that was a good amount of money. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, any this was right after I told God that. I mean, it wasn't a week after I told God that, that my lawyer called me out of the blue after we've already decided there's nothing could be done and says, yep, I got you 20 grand. So did this time, did this, this time, did you um, stick to the promise that you made with God? You never sold drugs again in my life. Wow. Ever, ever. Never sold anything illegal. Never, 
never did it. anything, you know, that was it. You that was done. it. So Jim, God has protected you so many times in your life. I know you had many other times in your life where you thought you were going to die. I know you said you had a gun that was held to your head once. Yeah, um, that's, that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> that was over a drug deal. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a bunch of pot from this guy and, and he gave, you know, it was a real quick switch. And, and then I took it home. I looked at it and the pot was full of seeds and I was ticked. And so I take the pot back to his house. I go up and I storm into knock on the door, storm into the room, said, you got to take this back and give me my money back. And he put a loaded clip into his pistol and he put it to my head. He says, what do you think now? I said, uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, God saved you through all these times because God had a plan for your life. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about that, but, but I, I suppose before we do, I, I do want to have a conversation with you about, about your son and what you went through with your son, <clears throat> which could be a real help for other parents out there that, that may be going through the same difficulties that you did. Yeah. Well, you know, my son, um, my son, when he was 11 years old, we, of course, we were not going to church. We were not doing any of this. But my son would go to church with grandma, right, every once in a while. And so one day I'm standing there at my bedroom door. He's standing by the fireplace in the living room, the house I'm in right now. And um, he says, Dad, we don't go to church that much. And I said, no, no, we don't go to church that much. He says, we should start going to church. And I says, yeah, we, we probably should start going to church. And, and I thought to myself, because, you know, that, the, that was the age when I started to become a teenager where I was pulling away from church. I was trying to, trying to do my own thing and, and for this young man to want to go to church. And I thought to myself, boy, Jim, if you don't take him up on this, you're going to kick yourself in the butt. I mean, you're going to really hate yourself. But, and that's when I realized as I look back how selfish um, drugs and alcohol is. I mean, when you, when you drink, when you get drunk, when you get stoned, you're not, you're not doing it for anybody else. You're doing it for yourself. There's nobody that, that gets anything good out of you getting high. Not one person. And it's just a, it, to me, it's a very selfish way to live. And, and that's what I was. I was too self-centered to stop what I was doing and take my kid to church because I knew I did not want to be a hypocrite. And I knew that if I took my kid to church, I'd have to stop getting high. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't do both. I couldn't say, yes, God, I love you, but I'm going to go get stoned. Um, it just, you know, wasn't going to work that way. But then, you know, so, so I didn't, so we didn't go to church four years later, the same boy is not coming home at night. I mean, I remember my wife and I waking up in the morning and saying, you know, where's, did our son make it home last night? He's 14, 15 years old, right? And he's not coming home all night long. And so, and we punished him. We grounded him. We, you know, we, we took his phone away. We took the door off his room. I mean, that, that don't work. I, I read something where that would work. It didn't work. And we tried everything we could, but he just kept doing what he was doing and he didn't do just a little bit of drugs he didn't try a little pot and a little alcohol i mean he he just really he did a lot not just a little that boy was just when he did something he did it right i'm telling you what he was doing coke and meth and ecstasy and alcohol and and just lots of it just tied so, the brick around his ankle and jumped oh i'm telling you and and yeah. so he 
he comes home one night and his, you know, his eyes are all bugged out and he's all high as can be. And he's yelling at his mom. He's yelling at me. And he, he goes into his bedroom and, and I've had it by then. I mean, I've tried everything and nothing's worked and, and I had it. So I went in and I opened the door and I picked him up by his shirt collar and, and said, and put him against the wall and said, you can't do this anymore. And he looked at me and he starts slamming his own head against the wall. I mean, bam, 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 slamming his own head against the wall. And it's like, I was, I was stuck. It's like, what do you do? What, I mean, what else? I can't even, I couldn't even, if I, and I didn't hit my kids, but you know, I spanked them when they were little, but, but what can you do? I, I even if I wanted to beating them up, wasn't going to work. He was beating himself up harder than I'd ever hit him. And so, so I just put him down and, and it was one of the worst days of my life. I put him down and I, and I realized I was helpless. And Aaron, that is the biggest thing. And I think that's the biggest thing that everybody has a hard time with, with accepting God. Because the thing, when you accept God, when you fully give your life to God, what you're doing is you're admitting that you're helpless that you can't do it on your own because we can't. I mean, Satan is so much bigger and smarter and more experienced than we will ever be. And there's absolutely no way we can save ourselves. There's no way we can do it on our own. And it took that to make me realize that I was a helpless piece of crap and that there was no way I was going to do it on my own. And I, I fell to my knees later on. And, and I, I, I told God, I says, Hey, if you'll save my son, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will go anywhere. I will say anything. I will do whatever you want me to do. And, and wow, what an incredible burden was lifted off of me at that point. Just incredible. Wow. And, and God took me up on it. <laughs> I mean, if you tell God that you're ready to go to work for him, you better have your work boots handy because he's going to line you up with something. Yeah. Huh? Well, let's talk about that, Jim. Let's talk about how God is using you in your life today. You are the president and the founder of an organization by the name of Ultimate Mission. You started out with a different name though, didn't you? Um, yeah, we started out with the name of Caleb Core, and because what we originally thought is that uh, it was, you know, we were on the borders of the promised land, just like the children of Israel, and and God wanted us to, to finish the work so he could take us home. We were on the borders of the promised land, and Caleb and Joshua were the ones that said, let's go over. Let's not worry about the giants. Let's not worry about the walled cities. They're, you know, it, it doesn't matter. God is going to lead us, and God will take care of things, and so we we felt, you know, the same calling, and so we, we call it Caleb. Caleb Core. But then the problem was that when we told somebody we were Caleb Core, they were like, what's that? You know, who's so Caleb? The marketing, yeah. The, the marketing <laughs> aspect of it was was really tough. And it, it's still our, our parent name. Um, we have a DBA doing business as ultimate mission because ultimate mission, when you say ultimate mission, yeah, people know pretty much, you know, yeah. what you do. Yeah. You know, I know <clears throat> you're working overseas now. You're doing some incredible work. What brought you to the point to take this overseas? Well, first of all, I know that Ultimate Mission is so much more than, than going overseas. You guys do a lot of work here in the United States. Talk a little bit about your mission here. 
Well, it, it, we've done a lot of things here. We work with the Oregon Conference to um, to do a Bible worker training program for lay people um, and just kind of teaching them how to connect with people in their in their neighborhoods. We worked with uh, we've worked with several different conferences on um, uh Connecting with your neighbors, a neighborhood connection program where we put together a book um, where you get your neighbors together and you talk about disasters, and then everybody gets each other's names, address, phone name, uh, phone number, email, kids' names, pets' names, special skills. So basically, it's a, a book that helps you build a relationship with your neighbors without pushing your religion on them. And so, because one of the first things I believe that you need to do in order to 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 introduce somebody to Jesus is they got to trust you. They've got to, you know, believe that you're in it for the right reason. You're not out there to put notches on your Bible to try to see how many people you can bring into your church. You're there because you love people. You and truly so, have to care for people. You got to. If you don't truly care for people, go do something else. Yeah. Because you, you shouldn't be in this game. And, and I call it a game. You know, I've used that word lightly. Um, you know, you shouldn't be out here trying to, to represent God if you've got a hook. Yeah. Got an agenda. I mean, mm. if you got an agenda, go sell used cars. <laughs> but if you, you know, if you really love people and you want them to know who Jesus is, then th there, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And that's what we try to do. We have a, a program that we have exclusive deal through Kroger Foods and Fred Meyer stores where we, um, we put different groups of uh, Christian uh, medical people together that go out into Fred Meyer stores and do blood pressure checks, health risk assessments. Of course, during the coronavirus, that's all been shut down. So much has been shut down. Hmm. And, and one of our newest projects right now is planting the church in Oregon City. And so that's, you know, that, that's a pretty cool deal. And so the ultimate mission board is behind this church plant and, and part of this church plant. We planted churches in India, as you know, and so we're, we're trying to do it here in the U.S. And, and trying to come up with a different model. That is, that is this model of loving people into a relationship with God. It's not about rules and regulations and doing it a certain way. It's about accepting people the way they are, loving them and introducing them to, you know, to Jesus. Starting a church plant. That's a huge, that's a huge job. That's a huge undertaking. It are is, you, but we're having a guys, lot of fun. Have you guys officially launched yet? Well, our official launch is 9-11-2021. Um, and we were, you know, that's when we were supposed to officially launch course, the coronavirus happened and all the churches shut down. So we started building a core group and meeting outside at a home. So we meet, you know, so we try to stay coronavirus safe, we stay outside, and we meet out at a home and then on zoom. And, you know, we just started having people come to our service that that stopped going to a traditional church. Mm. But they're coming to our little thing. And, and you so, saw the you saw the uh, opportunity that coronavirus gave you to start um, to start the church and to bring people in through Zoom, people who have fallen away from the church. Yes. Yeah. yeah. People are looking. People are wondering, hey, what's going on throughout all this garbage? Where I know you from the most and where I have spent most of my time with you is overseas, specifically in India. How in the world did you go from starting an organization in the United States and doing all of these things that you do here within the United States? How did you go from that to taking your idea over to India and, and talk me through that? How did that happen? 
well, Dell and Bonnie Orser is how that happened. <laughs> and uh, a friend of both of ours and, and Dell and Bonnie Orser. Matter of fact, they're the ones that got you over there too. But that's um, true. <laughs> they they offered to take me to, they talked about what they were doing in India and said I should go with them. And I, I'd wanted to go on a mission trip. I thought it'd be great. But, you know, it came right down to actually going. And Dell was calling me and, and I was going, oh, you know, I don't know if I have the vacation time. I don't know if I have the money I need. And then, we're we're emailing back and forth and Dale Dell emails me he says well Bonnie and I believe that if you step out there God will give you the money you need and the time you need to do it and I thought about it for like I don't know 10 seconds and I e emailed him back says all right I'm going and so I went over there with Dell and Bonnie and what an incredible trip that was they they built I think what 73 churches over there in India with their own money they're an incredible couple just incredible and yeah, I had they've the done a lot of work in India and traveling with Dell and Bonnie is just a hoot I mean <laughs> Bonnie is so funny she's just hilarious to travel with and so we're traveling throughout India trains planes and automobiles I mean we're just going from one place to another the, the funny thing with Dell and Bonnie too is they are so frugal with the money that they do have. They are over there for an organization because they're now working with an organization and yet they are trying to save every penny that they can. And so if you can save money and stay in a, in a, in a small house in a village somewhere, instead of staying in a hotel, you will definitely be staying in the village. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're roughing it with Del and Bonnie. Yeah. You're, yeah. You are. You're, That's you're where not, all the stories come from. Well, I went over there with them and, and, and I, you know, I seen a lot, I seen a few churches that, that have been abandoned over there and it was really making me scratch my head and, 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 you know, they it just were people had gone, but they weren't, weren't going there anymore. And so I come back from that trip and I'm thinking to myself, boy, I really want to do something in India. But building churches, I don't think that's it. I mean, that's what Dell and Bonnie did, and, and that's great. But I don't have that kind of money, and and I'm seeing churches that are being abandoned. And so so then I you know I talked to Jim Rennie from from Asian Aid, which is now Child Impact, and and Bonnie gave me his number, and I talked to him. And so I went over and I visited all the schools that uh, they were, or, or a lot of the schools that Asian Aid had sponsored children in, and that was a wonderful ministry. I mean, you know, there's a another incredible gospel outreach we work with is an incredible ministry and child impact is another incredible ministry and going around and seeing what these different schools did and how it impacted the kids and then the kids would go back and impact the village they lived in it was a one of the most wonderful ministries in the world and I'm sitting there with Jim Rennie one night and I'm telling him, you know, I've got this nonprofit organization. I want to do something in India. And, and Jim Rennie is pretty much the one that, that made me start thinking a lot harder about where I wanted to go in India. He goes, Jim, he goes, what are you doing right now that nobody else is doing? What are you, what are you doing that's unique? He says, everybody, there's a lot of us out here sponsoring children. There's a lot of people out here doing evangelism series. There's a lot of people out here, you know, doing different things. What are you doing that is unique? And, and Jim Rennie is a, is, is a great businessman. 
Um, and so I went back thinking about that. And then the next year I went back with Jim again, except I, I was going to do an evangelism series for, for Asian aid. They were going to sponsor me to do an evangelism series. So I put all the sermons together. I even did an evangelism series here in the States to kind of prep myself for it. And I was going to tweak the sermons for India. Right. But, but I did the evangelism series. We were, we were getting the tent bought, I mean, rented and the lorries rented and everything we needed. And it's about a month away from going about a month and a half. And Jim Rennie calls me up. He says, well, the government's really cracking down on evangelists. We have these orphanages and these schools. We can't afford to have you go over there and, and mess this up for us. So we can't do an evangelism series. And so I thought, well, because remember, I'm doing this health program here in the United States with the Fred Meyer stores. And so I've got all these nurses and docs that work with me. And uh, so I said, well, what if we did a health series? And so we, Jim says, well, oh, that'd probably work. And so one of the things that we did, we came over, we did uh, child evaluations in the slum school, in the orphanages, in the villages. But one of the things that, that also just came out of the blue was that um, they had 30 gospel outreach workers in this one conference that they wanted us to do a Bible worker training program. And I thought, well, since we're bringing docs and nurses over with us, let's just do a, a program on health. And we brought the book where there is no doctor. And we trained them out of the book where there, there is no doctor, these 30 gospel outreach workers. And then um, after we left, these guys all took these books back that we gave them and this training we gave them and they gave them to their wives. And we started getting incredible stories about their wives doing medical missionary work all on their own. And so that's how all of a sudden the idea hit us and the light bulb turned on. And our next trip over, we're hiring or we're training and stipending Bible worker wives to do medical missionary work. At the time, we had absolutely no idea how big this was. So just so people are aware, uh, about who Gospel Outreach is. Gospel Outreach is an organization that trains and supports Bible workers around the world, specifically within the 1040 window, to do work in remote villages. And they've been doing this, I don't know, when did, when did Gospel Outreach start? 22, 23 years ago, I believe. Something like that, yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah. So just so people are aware, that's who Gospel Outreach is. So you're working, you're training Gospel Outreach worker wives to do health work. Yeah, to do basic public health work. So, you know, as we're, we're there in India with the docs and, and the nurses, and we're looking around at what's going on, the, the biggest thing that affected me, well, two things is one, I'd seen the abandoned churches. And, and we had in this, this time we were there, one of our projects was to open a church that had been abandoned. And we opened this church with a one week health series. And, and, you know, Saturday, Sabbath morning, we had a, a full church of people from the village that came in. And then we're like, okay, we've got a full church. We opened this church. We're talking to the president of the union and says, okay, where's the pastor? He says, well, we don't have pastors. I go, what do you mean we don't have pastors? He says, well, they, we just don't pay them enough money. And so they end up going to get other jobs as taxi drivers or working in the field or something. And so we can't keep them around. And so that was one thing. We're like, okay, the pastors need more money. If we hire the women, then the women will add to the, supplement the income of the pastors and the churches can stay open. But um, we found out that the children, the 60% of the children that we checked were malnourished and undernourished. 
So what happened, and this is where I was going, in one of the villages I was in, we were doing this health camp, and these two young boys came up to me, about 10, 11 years old, and both of them were saying, they, they told me, he says, uh, uh, do you have any food? And I said, no. And I've been, you know, playing around with these boys all evening. I mean, I'm taking their picture and messing around here and there. We're having a good time. At the end of the evening, they said, do you have any food? And I didn't have any food with me. I had a pocket full of rupees, but I have, you know, 300 people around me. I can't really start handing out rupees. And, and I said, I'm sorry. She, they said, sir, we're, we're really hungry. Do you have any food? And I, I said, no, I don't have any food. And, and, and I left those boys hungry. And I asked our doctors and I said, what, 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 what can we do? I mean, we can't feed all the children in India. And that's when the idea started coming because they were saying, you know, if, if you could teach them to drink clean water and wash their hands, that you'd make a huge difference because a lot of the nutrition that they do get is going to fight off disease. So they live in the, the hygiene there, as you know, I mean, you have open sewers, you have defecation all over the place from animals and humans. I mean, it's just a really filthy environment. And then and, you're eating with your hands. And then you're eating with your hands and they're not washing their hands and their water they're drinking is bad. And so when we, when we hire these pastor's wives, what we didn't realize is at first it was just to try to get the pastor's uh, you know, household more money. But what we started to realize is the women cooked the food, the women uh, carry the water, the women take care of the children, the women have the babies. I mean, so when we when we train women to do health work, and, and over there, I mean, you know, you don't have a man that's going to tell a woman a, a lot about personal hygiene and health. I mean, that just doesn't work. Some guy isn't coming in and talking to your wife about this stuff. And so but a woman ministering to a woman is very powerful. Very, very powerful. Yeah. And, and women are treated like property in India sometimes, a lot of times. And so the women, when we give them a job, we give them a stipend and we give them a skill, their, their self-worth just, just goes through the roof. And, and the just, way that they're treated oh, the way that has they're changed. Treated. They're yeah, being respected the, because they have a skill that nobody else in the village has. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, all the good things that happen from training gospel outreach worker wives to be medical missionaries is just, it's a God thing. I mean, you, there, there's no way that we were smart enough to come up with all the incredible things that would happen when you teach a woman a skill, uh, a medical skill. There's just no way. And, and I mean, you, there's so many studies I didn't know at the time, but I found out since that if you educate a woman, the health of the whole village rises. And it's, yeah, it's amazing what God has done with this ministry. It's just so incredibly exciting. So, so Jim, help me with the timeline a little bit. What was the first year that you went to India? That was with Del and Bonnie Orchard. Yeah. But what year was that? Do you remember? Uh, 2010. That was 2010. Okay. So, yeah. When did you start training health workers? 2014. 2014. Okay. I thought. Well, I, I 2013. Had an... 2013 was the gospel outreach workers. Our first health uh, um, missionary project was in 2013. Okay, that's what I thought. I I, I had a number 2014 2014 in my head. Okay, so so now you're going over there, you're training these health workers, you're training the Bible workers' wives, you're going there every single year, you're having these health camps. 
in which you bring the women in and you use it as almost like a retreat for the women and you train them to do health work, right? Basic health work. And you give them the tools that they need that you, you give them a book called where there is no doctor and they can use that book to help guide them and to help uh, give them the tools that they need to help people in these remote villages. Education is huge in India. Like the lack of education, just, just educating somebody on how to stay, um, to, to eat properly and to keep your hands clean. It just that alone will save so many lives, right? What is the mortality rate on the children again? Well, around depending on where you're where you're looking, but uh, I, I've seen thing uh, from the World Health Organization uh, up to four thousand a day that the children are dying under the age of five. I figure it's probably you know I don't know, and that was a few years ago. But if you you Google it and you look it up, it's it's at least three thousand children a day. But what the World Health Organization also says, and I believe it, and 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 I bet you will too, is that if you could teach kids to drink clean water and wash their hands, you can cut that number in half. Hundred percent. I totally agree with that. When you go to I mean, these environments, when you go and spend time with these people, there is no way that that would be inaccurate. Yeah, and yeah. and so, and you wonder, okay, well, you got one point four billion people. How are you going to do this? Well, the thing is, you'd have to have health training centers all over India. And here's the beauty: we do. They're called Adventist churches. Yeah. And this, this is where it gets into something that I wanted to ask you. There was a point in your, in in training these women where you said, God, by a certain time you want to have, you wanted to have a thousand health worker women trained. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We set a 10 year goal to, to try to have a thousand. Um, And so, and that was, I think four years ago. And now you have about over a hundred women, correct? Yes. And so the question has been asked, how are you going to reach, how is God going to make this happen? Right. It's almost, it's almost an unattainable goal. If we don't add God into the equation to to train a thousand women. It's completely unattainable if you don't add God into the equation and, and at least for, for us, but um, so, and, and one of the things with making a goal like that is it makes you look at things differently. So we made that goal and, and okay, now we've got to try to get on three ABN. We've got to try to get on better life television. We've got to go to all the different camp meetings. We've got to try to get to more churches. So when you make a goal like that, it makes you look bigger. It, it, it just changes the way that you operate your organization when you have a big goal. But God has really put something in front of us, though, hasn't he? Yes, he has. What happened a couple months ago, Jim? Well, a couple months ago, we officially became partners with Gospel Outreach. Now, Gospel Outreach has over 1,500 workers in India, and they would like us to train all the wives. Now, this isn't going to happen overnight because, of course, it takes funding and everything else. But, uh, but with the help of Gospel Outreach, I think we're going to be making that 10-year goal. I really do. And, and, and I think we're, we're probably going to exceed that 10 year goal. I think so. I think you are. It's amazing. It's amazing. And when I I've traveled over to India, 
um, five times now. Most of those times I have run into you while you were over there, or I've also gone over there just with you once as well. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you go over there and you see the difference between a village that has a health worker and a village that does not, it is just huge. A husband and a wife working together in the village and going house to house, helping people with their health needs, and then teaching them about God. Absolutely amazing. And you see the difference in the church. You see the difference in the people. You see the difference in how clean the village is. You can visually see the difference in the village. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible um, thing that you're doing, Jim. And, and what's even more exciting is this is just in India. Gospel Outreach has workers all over the world in different countries. And as Ultimate Mission grows with Gospel Outreach and you start to train more and more women, this is going to not only be in India, this is going to be in different countries around the world. Yeah. I, I'm really hoping so. I, I really want to get into Afghanistan. And Gospel Outreach has a couple <laughs> Bible workers in Afghanistan. Um, two I, two I, months ago, we were we were at Gospel Outreach headquarters in Walla Walla, and and Jim walks up to me and he goes, "Hey, Aaron, you want to go to Afghanistan?" Yeah. <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, no, absolutely, let's go." Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the reason I want to go to Afghanistan is because Afghanistan has the world worst infant mortality rate in the world. And when babies are dying, very simple things are not being done. And where our program works best is, is where the infant mortality rate is high. Because really, um, you know, breastfeeding, clean water, uh, you know, just trying to keep women from being anemic through their, through their pregnancy and afterwards, keeping children fed. And I mean, all that is, is actually really simple stuff. It, it doesn't take, it's not very complex to wash your hands and drink clean water, right? It's just, no. it's not that complex. And it's not, and breastfeeding is not that, I mean, it can be complex, but it's, it's natural. And, but there's just so many people out there that don't do it and and cut it short and it just there's a lot of very simple things that can be done um that will help and and it's just amazing how that helps people find jesus because there's a reason jesus healed people i mean if you if you are if you have a broken arm you're not really thinking about going and worshiping. You're not thinking about, um, you know, I need to read my Bible. You're thinking, I got to fix my arm, right? And and so if people are very miserable, and if their children are dying, and if they're, I, to get them to, to try to take that next step to, to believe and to understand and to have a relationship with a God that can change their life and make it so much better is, there's a reason Jesus did he healed. There's a reason he healed. Absolutely. It showed people that he loved them, that he cared about them first. And once they know they people, once people know you care about them, that's when good things really start to happen. You receive so many amazing stories from your health workers about the work that they are doing and miracles that God is performing through them. But is there just like one specific story that you could share from a health worker um, about something that they did, about a life that they saved that otherwise would not have been saved if they were not there? Well, there is this one story that I got oh, just a few weeks ago and from Sunitha. 
And Sunitha was visiting this mother whose child just would not gain weight. 20, I think the child was 20 days old and it had lost half of its weight. And, and as a, a child coming, you know, from, from delivery, I mean, that child should be gaining weight all the time, gaining weight. It had lost half of its weight. And so they took the child to the hospital and the hospital couldn't find nothing wrong with the child and sent the child back. And Sunitha, you know, she, with what's up, she, she told me what was going on with the child. And I says, and then she said, well, we went, we're, we're taking her to another hospital. So they took the child to another hospital and the hospital couldn't figure it out. And they sent the child back. So here's a baby that continues to lose weight. And here's our health worker over there trying to figure out what in the world she's asking me for advice. I'm asking our doctors for advice and you know, nobody's there with the child. So they're, they're given this advice and that advice, but they really can't figure out what's going on without seeing the baby without doing tests, you know, and doing blood tests and all that. And, and, and I, I, we, we got our docs told Sunitha, um, you got to get this baby to another doctor. I, we don't know what we can do from here, from halfway around the world. And so Sunitha goes out and, and takes that mother and that baby and goes to the next town and goes to a children's hospital, finally gets that baby into a children's hospital. And the next picture I'm being sent is of this baby with tubes coming out of it. And they're doing an operation on the baby. And the baby is now okay. Wow. So this, this kind of stuff happens all the time. I mean, I had another woman that she, they, they, there was a delivery. I mean, well, no, the woman was pregnant. She needed to have the delivery and she goes to the hospital. The hospital says, yeah, um, this is, uh, this is going to be a complicated birth. It looks like the baby's breached. They said, do you have any rupees, any money that you can pay for this delivery? And the lady said, no, I don't, I don't have any money to pay for the delivery. And the, the hospital sent her home. And so she calls our health worker again. The health worker says, well, go to another hospital. So she went to the other hospital and, and the same thing happened. They, they said, well, this, the baby's breached and, and this is going to be a complicated delivery. Do you have the money to pay for this? She said, no. And they sent her away. So she comes back home. She calls our lady again and the lady comes over <clears throat> and the baby came. I mean, there was, there was no more time. And so our lady delivered the baby right there, a breached child. And, and praise God, she was able to, to make it happen. But, you know, these, these kind of things happen all the time. I mean, you, you ask for one story. I could, I could sit here and tell you story after story of, of oh. people that have snake bites and scorpion bites and strokes. And, I mean, there's just all kinds of things where our ladies are making a huge, huge difference in these villages. Yeah, it's amazing. These women are warriors, and they're, they are changing these villages from within. Oh yeah. And the coronavirus. I mean, you got people getting the coronavirus and and nobody's there to take <clears throat> these people are are supposed to stay in their houses. And and so our ladies are bringing their food and bringing their water and and making sure that you know they have what they need to try to get through. And so yeah, especially right now with the coronavirus, because the doctors have all been taken to the big hospitals that are full of coronavirus patients, and there's nobody to take care of people out in the villages. And so our ladies are ending up giving injections, doing IVs, doing all kinds of things that really, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to do here in the United States, but some of them have the training to be able to do it and doing stuff that, that the doctors would normally do. And so, yeah, just 
And you and you think about what's going on with the coronavirus, and one of the biggest things that we've been treating or uh, that we have been uh, uh, um, teaching people to do is to wash your hands, right? Well, one of the biggest things you can do to keep from getting the coronavirus is to wash your hands. Yeah. So, so what we've been teaching this whole time is having a difference, making a difference. Yeah. And so I get these stories. I get five, 600 pictures and stories every week. Matter of fact, I got, I got 600 stories. I got to go through as soon as I'm done with this podcast. <laughs> and, and, and you pass some of those stories along and they end up on social media for, for the, the donors to see, for people to see, um, because some of these stories are just so incredibly unbelievable. And it's, it, we can't even wrap our minds around it being in a, in, in the Western world. We, yeah. it's so hard for us to even wrap our minds around what's going on over there and how these women are impacting the villages. But I've got a random question for you, Jim. And that question is, you know, you have a prosthetic leg. What is it like to travel in India and work in a place like India with a prosthetic leg? Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a pain when you got to take it off to take a shower. Yeah. As, <laughs> what happened a few years ago, as you know, I, you know, the, the, a lot of the showers in India have uh, uh, marble floors, uh, marble floors and water and one foot just really doesn't work out too well. And I, I fell in the shower in India um, and I dislocated my shoulder. So that's kind of a pain, but uh, for the most part, you know, at, 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 I'm 55. When you get to this age, everybody's got some sort of disability. Their back, their, <laughs> their you know, their shoulder, their back, their hips, their knees. Yeah. I mean, everybody's got something. And and I got a prosthetic leg. It's just, a, you know, it's like pushing a wheelbarrow around with a broken handle. You just, yeah. you do it and it works. And You and do a you, lot of wandering around villages um, with with the women, so a lot of walking around in India. Which... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and one thing a prosthetic leg does for me is people really are, in, you know, enamored by it. They look at it and they go, wow, well, you know, that's, that's, that's neat or that's cool. Because I got a, a pretty updated one. I mean, it's a C-leg. It's, it's computerized in that it, it has a stumble recovery pro, program in it. And so if I step on uneven ground, I, I normally don't fall down. Sometimes I do, but normally I don't. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's really not a big deal, to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's just... It's well, just, you've had so many years with it. You've just, you're just, oh, yeah, shoot. Yeah. 30 some odd years now. It's like another piece you know, of my anatomy. You know, there is, we were spending a night in a hotel in India. You and I were sharing a room. And I will never forget there was a young man that was working at the hotel and he had just, uh, you know, a trashy um, prosthetic leg, which, you know, in India to have a prosthetic period is a privilege. It is right. a luxury. You see people crawling around all the time with no legs, mm -hmm. you know, or no arms, or it, it's the things that you see in India is, is incredible. And so having a prosthetic leg, no matter how trashy it may be, is a privilege. But he saw that you had a prosthetic and the connection that he had with you was was amazing and he wanted to come up to the room he wanted to see your prosthetic he wanted to show you his it was just a really cool connection that happened there and i don't know i don't know if you uh did you ever become friends with that young man at all 
Um, I never, we never followed through with any Facebook or anything like that. So no, I didn't, yeah. unfortunately, but it was just really cool. Yeah. Cause you can it, connect with a certain kind of per- people that, that some just cannot. Well, and I can connect with a lot of people that are in misery um, because most people, although we all have a handicap at this age of one way or another, you can't see it, but you can see mine. Right. And so, so I, I kind of, you know, we're all in the same boat. I get people that are hurting or whatever, and they see me and they, they realize that, you know, we're kindred spirits. We've all got, we've all got a problem. We're not, I'm not this perfect American, this rich, perfect American. I'm just, you know, another person that, that has a, that has a problem like they do. And, you know, it's kind of like non-Christian seeing Christians that are, you know, these perfect people. Well, we're not, we're all sinners. We all got big, big problems problems mm. and and when people can understand that you're just like them um that that does i mean it's an advantage for me actually yeah. I have, and i've got to say a prosthetic is an advantage for me in life because people remember me you yeah. know they may not remember me if i didn't have a fake leg but they all oh, that one-legged guy over there <laughs> so you know whether yeah. they remembered me for the right thing or not i don't know but at least yeah. i stand out in the crowd so so you know we've we've heard your story today We've heard about the work that you're doing around the world. God has used you in a mighty way and he continues to use you all the time. And, um, you know, the, the name of this podcast is the Simply Overcoming podcast. It's about people overcoming things in their lives and we've all overcome things in our lives. And so that's what's great about this podcast is I could literally have a conversation with anybody because hopefully everybody has overcome something, right? Oh yeah, nobody but, rides for free. Yeah, and, and you know, I would... I could ask you a question about what you're doing over in India, like, or something of that nature for, for your final comments, your final thoughts. But I almost feel like for final thoughts from you, maybe you could speak to a parent out there um, who is a dealing with um, a, a young person in their life that there's there's maybe struggling with addiction or something of that nature i mean what what final words do you have maybe you want to go in a completely different direction with your final words but what can you say to motivate people maybe in a situation like that trust i my you've got to trust god to take care of your kids and and when you trust god to not just take care of your life but take care of your children's lives, it frees you up. And it it puts you in a place where you don't feel like you've got to, you've got to badger your children, you've got to act a certain way, you've got to, to invite them to certain things or, you know, whatever that, that your human impulse is telling you to do, if you trust God to take care of your kids. And, and I also want to speak to those of you out there that, that may have an addiction. Addictions are not what God has planned for our lives. Um, the, the problem with any type of drug, whether it's pot or alcohol, even if it's a little bit, the thing is God speaks to us through our minds. And, and at least with most of us, he doesn't come down, sit in front of us and say, hey, Jim, I mean, you know, that's God. God speaks through us through impressions, through reading the Bible and through our minds. And if we block God out by being high, we lose that connection with the Holy Spirit that we need. And for all of us, whether it's parents or, or any of us that have addictive problems, um, that connection with the Holy Spirit 
is what gets us through life, makes us have a wonderful, incredible life, and ultimately is going to save us. And I will tell you that, that this side of sobriety, that my life after I left the secular world, after I, I devoted myself to trying to help other people find Jesus, has been the most incredible life I could have ever imagined. God has given me a life that is beyond belief and is more enjoyable and fulfilling than anything I could have ever dreamed. And so if that's something you want, um, you know, let God take you to where he needs you to go. And, and it doesn't mean you have to go where I went or where Aaron goes. It just means that you got to let God take you where God wants you to go. And you will have the most incredible life you could have ever, ever dreamed of. Mm. I think that's all I got. Amazing. Jim, thank you for being on the podcast. Where can people find you on, on the socials? Maybe your website, where can people follow along? Uh, ultimatemission.net. That's ultimatemission.net. Um, you can always contact me through there or the ultimate mission Facebook page that Aaron manages for me. Um, <laughs> and, and he's a great at it. So if you want something managed, talk to Aaron, if he's got time, um, don't, don't take up so much of his time that he, he leaves me, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, so so my um, ultimate mission, and then uh, YouTube, uh, the, they can find me on the ultimate mission, or we, it's the Christian Life Empowerment YouTube page. Correct, the Christian Life Empowerment. Ultimate. Yeah, we had to change it from ultimate mission because nobody could find it, because um, there was <laughs> too many other things called ultimate mission. Yeah. And then, of course, um, the Christian Life Empowerment podcast that you can find on Google Play or Apple. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I, I'm easy to find if you, I guess you, if you know where to look, Jim, um, you're a busy man. <laughs> well, you've got a lot of things going on. <laughs> well, we'll have everything down in the show notes and thank you for being on the, the, the podcast and we'll see yeah. you guys next time. Thank you for inviting me.